Hello and welcome to Field Notes, a podcast about linguistic fieldwork. I'm Martha Sutsui Billens, and today's episode is with Patrick Heinrich. Patrick Heinrich is a professor at the Kafuskari University of Venice. He received his master's degree in linguistics and Japanese studies in 1998 from Heinrich Heine University, Dusseldorf. He completed his PhD in Japanese studies in 2002 at Duisburg University. He is a sociolinguist who has worked extensively in the Ryukyuan archipelago and has written many publications on language ideology, language shift, language reclamation, language planning and policy, and language and well being. Along with Shinsho Miyara and Michinori Shimoji, he is the co editor of the Handbook of the Ryukyuan Languages, 2015. He is also co editor of Language Crisis in the Ryukyus 2014, along with Mark Anderson. For listeners who are not familiar with Ryukyuan languages, they are the languages spoken in the Ryukyuan archipelago. The largest Ryukyuan island is Okinawa, which most people are familiar with. Ryukyuan languages are distinct languages from Japanese, and it is unknown how many Ryukyuan languages there are, but there are at least six Amami, the language I work with, Kunigami, Uchinaguchi, which is spoken in Okinawa, Miyako, Dunan, or Yonaguni, and Yayama. Within these six, there are many dialects, but all Ryukyuan varieties are endangered, and the majority of speakers are elderly. Further, the current documentation is considered fragmentary at best, according to UNESCO's 2003 Language Endangerment and Vitality Assessment Tool. There are, however, several revitalization efforts and some new speakers who are reclaiming their heritage languages. Maruka Hamine, friend of the pod from episode six, has done a lot of work with new speakers, and I'll link her research gate in the show notes if you want to learn more about Maruka's work. Patrick is a longtime mentor of mine. I greatly look up to him, and I'm so thrilled to have him on the pod today to share some of his expertise and his stories from the field. In this interview, Patrick shares his thoughts on language revitalization in the UQs and why UQN languages should be unmarked and used in all domains. Patrick also discusses his work on co- the connection between language and well being, and how maintaining a language is not just something that is hip or fashionable, but rather maintaining a minority language can have far reaching benefits on community welfare. Hi, Patrick. How are you? Hi, Martha. I'm fine. How are you? Yeah, really good. Thank you. Thank you for taking time for field notes.、Um, so, to start, the first thing I'd like to ask you is how did you first become interested in linguistics? Well, it was never really planned,、um, I guess, but there were lots of events that resulted in me becoming a linguist.、Um, the first thing is that I actually grew up being bilingual. So, my mother's French, my father's German. And we spoke French in the family. And, you know, I grew up in the early 70s. So that was not a big thing being bilingual. Like nobody really knew it because it was in the family. But I guess, you know, because I was always often going to France in summer vacation and、um, everything was different there, right? Speaking French. So there was some interest, I think, in language early on. And then I, I actually traveled for two years before I went to university. So I,、uh, I went to China, I went to Japan, I worked in Hong Kong for a while and、uh, started speaking English、uh, with friends and you know, picked up a few Chinese phrases, a bit of Japanese、uh, back then. And、uh, when I decided that I should finally enroll in university,、uh, I enrolled in a course which was called、uh, English Philology. And we studied literature, language history, and also linguistics、um, for the first two years. And after two years, we had to specialize. And,、um, you know, in these first two years, all these introductory courses, 
I actually liked linguistics best, to my surprise, because I thought, you know, oh, maybe literature is something that you're interested in. And I had also started to teach German to Japanese back then uh, as, a, as a student job. And I thought, oh, it would be helpful if you knew a bit more about language than just being able to speak German and, uh, you know, sort of correct them on that basis. It would be good if I would understand, you know, why they make this mistake or how you could explain certain things. So your first degree was in philology, is that right? Yes. Um, um, yeah, I'm actually not a scholar of Japanese studies. So I'm, I'm trained in uh, English philology and I specialized early on in pragmatics and English as, as a student. But I studied as another subject, uh, Japanese history, and they made me study Japanese there. So, it, you know, I, I never wanted to learn Japanese. They just said, well, if you're there, you have to learn Japanese. And since I learned Japanese by accident, uh, the linguistics professors got interested in me. They would also point out, Patrick, how's that in Japanese? And so I started doing like little contrastive papers, uh, assignments, you know, where I would look at, I remember like Middle English relative clauses and Japanese uh, Renyoke constructions was like one thing I looked at. So, um, yeah, by chance, really. That's interesting. I've never heard that before, that you started with philology. That's really interesting. So then how did you end up in the Ryukyus, working in Ryukyus? That too came actually rather late. So um, I guess, you know, from my work, the work on the Ryukyus is, you know, most commonly known maybe also because I've, I've written a lot on the Ryukyus, but I actually entered the field quite late. Um, that is, I had done a PhD thesis, which had like nothing on the Ryukyus, and I was defending that thesis, and on my committee was Professor Kreiner. Uh, Professor Kreiner is an Austrian uh, ethnographer who has done very, very important work on Amami. So, you know, he's been, you know, to Konya and Kakeroma and all these places. I, I did not know that. He was just in the commission. And uh, we were discussing language modernization, standardization, these kind of things on which I had worked. And he asked me, how about the Ryukyus? And I had no idea about the Ryukyus. You know, I just gave some vague ans uh, answers saying, yeah, you know, in the peripheries, usually standardization and so on and so forth. But when it was over, and he was happy with that answer, but when it was over, I thought, oh, my God, you don't know anything about the Ryukyus. And since I had a, a PhD degree in my pocket, so the first thing I did is apply for funds to go to the Ryukyus and to learn something about it. So that was the first little project after my dissertation. So I got a, a grant and I went for three months to uh, the University of the Ryukyus and Okinawa University. And what I did is just sit in the library and I've read everything on the Ryukyu languages in that summer. That was really excellent preparation. And back then there was much less information than there is out uh, today. So you could actually do it in three months. And as an effect of reading for three months, you know, I figured out that some things don't go together very nicely and that they require a better explanation. Wow. So really just because of this one person who was at your PhD defense and like one comment that he made, it's affected the entire trajectory of your research life. Yes. And I, I must take credit that the question, you know, I mean, I could have brushed it off and said, oh, that was that old ethnographer coming with his Ryukyu stuff. Yeah. You know, I genuinely thought you should know something about the Ryukyus. You should not, you know, brush it off that easily. And so uh, I'm, I'm very proud of myself that, you know, this one questions, which, you know, it was like a 45 second thing. It was no big deal in the discussion. And Professor Kaina himself does not remember it anymore. Um, that, you, you know, I thought like, look, you know, you should know stuff. You have a PhD. You know, there is a question there. You, you fooled the good old man, right? You just said something, but actually you, you were ignorant. <laughs> and I thought, you know, this, this should not go. You, you, you're privileged now. And, you know, I was employed at a university. I was working in Germany. There's really enough research funds there. So I thought, ask for research funds, go there and, you know, learn to give the proper answer. Mm -hmm. Okay, so so you went to 
university that you accused, Okinawa University, and you studied for one summer, read everything. And then from there, did you start working with Uchinaguchi speakers? Like what was the the kind of first language that you did field work on in that in that area? No, in the first year I only read. And um, you know, I, I learned about the existence of these languages. I had just a vague idea that there's Ryukyuan and I thought it's, you know, just one language and a few dialects. So I, I, I learned how complex the situation is. And I also remember that in that first summer, I was there for three full months. I did not hear a single word of Rukun. Mm. So, you know, since I read something, of course, I came across data and transcriptions, and there were already some textbooks um, out then. But I've never heard anyone utter a word. And the second last day of my stay at Ryukyu University, Professor Karimata, who was looking after me at the University of the Ryukyus, said, oh, you should actually speak to Professor Miyara because he's trying to revitalize the language. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. So I, you know, I knocked at his door, I talked to him, and we talked for many hours. And I find it so interesting that, you know, because there was, of course, no literature on language revitalization, there basically was no language revitalization happening back then. And Professor Miyara actually uh, scolded me for having just sat in the library and <laughs> having just studied for three months. And he says, you know, that's not what you should do. You should do a, a research project. You're a social linguist. And we do not have social linguists here. Because he figured out while we were talking that I knew a few things about, you know, language endangerment, language revitalization. And since he, he really scolded me and I said, oh, look, I write a second application and I come back next year and we do a project together. And so in 2004, I returned and I did a research into the uh, language vitality of Okinawa and of Miyakojima um, at that point. And the results we obtained were so promising. Then, then uh, the following year, I went to Amami, to Ishigaki and to Yonaguni. And that data then found its entry in the UNESCO Atlas uh, of the uh, languages uh, in danger of disappearance. So it was somehow a missing piece, you know, that I could provide to say, like, look, there's at least five languages and this is the state of endangerment. So it, it's more serious than people have thought. Can we talk a bit about your fieldwork biography? You've worked with so many in the Ryukyus, you've worked with so many different languages. So... Lately, I think you've been working a lot with Yonaguni. Yes. I'm wondering, like, where was the starting point and, like, what have you been focusing on? Like, what was the evolution of your fieldwork in Ryukyu's? Well, to start with, um, you know, that little project that I started with Pref uh, Professor Miyara brought me across the entire Ryukyu's, which I think was very unusual because usually people would do, or nowadays would do a PhD project, they would zoom in on one language, one variety, which already is difficult enough. So I had the chance of, of traveling the Ryukyus various times because after questionnaire service, I returned again the next year and did interviews uh, with people about, you know, language endangerment, language in the family. And as an effect of that, I understood that the most, that the weakest language, the most endangered language is that of Yonaguni. Mm -hmm. And so I developed naturally an, an interest in, in Yonaguni. And I then wrote a, a larger project for which I went to the universities of the Ryukyus for two years from 2008 to 2010. Um, where I looked into the language ecology of Yonaguni. So I was interested there, not just in, in Dunan, the language of Yonaguni, but in the fact that this is a, a bilingual uh, society and that uh, people have different command of different languages. So I was not happy to pretend that here we have like an endangered language speaker and um, you know, assuming that he doesn't speak the dominant language or that the, that the dominant language would not interfere in into um, their dunan. So I did not want to be part of this, you know, data cleaning really what it is, right? And um, it, it's also, you know, it also has an essentialist bias to, pre you know, to present them as the true, as the authentic um, Yonaguni people. I, I, I thought this would be a disservice for the people themselves, to be presented with such an image of themselves that they could themselves never 
fulfill. So I thought it would be much better to be like realistic, like, you know, saying, okay, they have like even so-called non-speakers, you know, they know words, they know tokens, um, they know fixed expressions and they use them. Um, and these expressions do something in interaction. And I had also learned that um, on Yonaguni Island, which is very small, it's just, you know, 14 kilometers on six, seven kilometers, and there's only 1,500 people living there, that there's a third language there, namely Okinawan. So they had in one of the settlements um, that migrants from Okinawa who engaged in fishing. And I worked, for instance, for with one guy who called uh, Tamashiro, who had been a fisherman for all his life. And he, he spoke three languages, but he was not aware of that. He spoke Japanese, Okinawan, and Dunan, but he was he, jo- he just thought he's just like, you know, a fisherman from Yonaguni who, you know, switches from, you know, one way of speaking between one friend to another. Yeah, this was a bit, um, you know, the, 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 the things that I, I looked in. And I'm, I'm still trying to work on, on Yonaguni. It's just, you know, time is always the, the problem. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I like the inclusion of the non-speakers or like non-speakers, quote unquote, and semi-speakers in the in the community. This is something I I also did in my project, probably inspired by you, actually. <laughs> um, and Mark Anderson used this phrase that I've since adopted in my research called lexical touchstones. Yes, and I think that's like a really important piece of the community in in the Ryukyus where even people who would say that they don't speak the local language, they still use these lexical touchstones and they tie them to their community and they use them, you know, to express solidarity or localness or intimacy. And it's like a really important piece of their repertoire. And also that part about like, people not realizing that they speak multiple languages. This is something I've also heard from Madoka Hamine, that when she went to university in Tokyo, she realized, oh, like my family has their own language that I just never noticed. Hmm. So I think it's a really common experience. One thing that I've learned, and I think I've learned it from John Maher, you know, the social linguist from a Christian University in Tokyo, is that um, we as researchers should not discourage uh, people wh- whom we study. You know, we should not say like, oh, that's very little Okinawan or that's very little Amamian or, or whatever it is. But to say, you, you know, to say, oh, there's something there. And and for instance, something which is um, vastly under-evaluated is the passive bilingualness of, you know, an entire generation in the Ryukyus, hundreds of thousands of people are able to understand the language. And this is already such a skill on which one can so easily build if, you know, they're giving the opportunity and the encouragement. And uh, if somebody actually tells them, that's not little. That is not little. And it has value. It has value, yes. And I know personally people who've been told that and who then learn the language. Arakaki Tomoko is very open about that, so I can so I can give her name. You know, there um, there's my friend Tsukahara, uh, Professor Tsukahara from Kyoto University, who said exactly these words. Oh my God! But you understand, that's not little. Mm-hmm. And then she finally took the courage, you know, after years, to say, I should learn it. I should sit down and learn it, and I should confront also my limits because having been told that she knows something made it easier for her to say, but this I don't know yet. And otherwise, I mean, we, we very often do that, even if we learn second language, right? One tries to come across as more fluent than one really is. And so, you know, language learning requires to some extent also to stop that and to say, you, you know, can you repeat it? You know, can you explain that? I didn't understand that. And so, you know, she, she was able to, to take that step. And today she, she speaks okay now now. I, I think this is something I've I've seen with you a lot in terms of like mentorship, language revitalization, like like people need to be empowered to really feel like, okay, actually I have something to contribute. I do have relevant skills and and I can do it. Even if I thought like, oh well, like my language is not, you know, my language skills are not that good or I can only understand, I can't speak. 
I think sometimes it just takes like that little push for, for one person to say like, no, actually, like this is important. And then people can act on it. Mm-hmm. What work in terms of revitalization is happening in the Ryukyus and what, what major obstacles are there in your opinion? Well, the, the problem is, I, I think, generally always the same, that we've all come to learn that one should not oppress languages, right? One should not discourage people to speak a language. So, you know, in most countries, this is already a fact. And also that we say something like, oh, language diversity is a good thing. Um, but um, there is a huge gap between what we say, what we state, and, and, and uh, what we do. I think that language revitalization and multilingualism is not properly understood. And it's not properly understood also by lots of specialists, lots of professors, lots of policymakers. If you want to, um, if we take the Rukun languages and you want to restrict them to specific functions and to specific roles, you know, you need to ask the question, why? You know, why is that only good? in the family, you know, why would that not be written on, you know, a street sign? Why would that not enter the school education? And um, then you always arrive to the question that people think it's not valuable enough. That is really, really what is um, um, behind it. So you have to understand that, you know, a true evaluation is not in words. It's not to say, you know, in, in, in Okinawa, they would always say, let's, you know, let's, take it seriously. Um, you know, you have to do that with your actions. You have to do that like um, implicitly. That's not happening um, in many places in the world. You usually need like a microphone and a podest and an occasion to speak um, that language. And that's not very good because it means it's marked. Mm-hmm. It's marked for something. You know, it's like, oh my God, that guy has this skill or she sings that song kind of thing. But it should be unmarked. It should be really part of you. I don't think that this is properly understood in, in most places. And it's certainly not understood in, in the Rukus at the moment by people who would have the possibility to create policies uh, to support language. So Okinawa Prefecture, of course, um, is like the first that comes to mind, but also universities come to mind there. Municipalities come to mind here. Some are obviously better than others. But uh, if, if you want to revitalize a language, you have to strengthen that language. And that means you have to take something away from the dominant language. You have to take some away some function, some space, and people are not ready for that. Right. If you would take it in that direction and say, okay, we need more room for Rukun, where can Japanese go? You know, people say, oh, no, but Japanese is important, right? That's what they would answer. And so there is no genuine understanding that whatever Japanese does does not mean that there are other functions, does not mean that there could be a second language, doesn't mean that there could be a language that does some things better than Japanese. And as a matter of fact, we know that Ryukyun languages do some things better than Japanese, and we are not tapping on these resources, on these um, possibilities. I think it's the work of us linguists, right, to to raise this awareness and to show which benefits uh, languages have. Mm-hmm. But as it stands at the moment, difference is usually, you know, it's it's fine as long as it's entertaining. But when it comes to like, now I have, you know, some rights or somebody takes my problem seriously with that, then usually the interest already stops, right? And in in the Rukus in particular, another problem is, I mean, I don't want to go too much into these details because it's been discussed a lot, is, you know, that it's not properly recognized as a language. So it's so easy to explain a language away as either being archaic or having few speakers, or being a variation of something else. And so this is uh, a problem in the Ryukyus. Um, also, their local terminology of community language, Shimakutuba or Shimamuni. Mm, Shimaguchi. You know, just puts it on the extreme local level, which in one way is nice. But on the other hand, you have Shimakutuba community language, and then you have Japanese, which is like, state language, national language, right? So you need something equivalent conceptually to Japanese, and that would be, you know, gengo, a language. 
And uh, Okinawa Prefecture is obviously hiding behind Shimakutuba because Shimakutuba is actually, you know, it, it's the equivalent of a, a dialect of Rikun languages. Mm-hmm. So they're fine with dialect because that does not empower people to ask for like, oh, shouldn't we have a sign at the airport? Should we not have the announcement in Rikun? Right? Should we not have like bilingual radio programs? Should we not have, you know, more space on local television? Should we not have bilingual columns? Right? Because it's dialect, right? Yeah, that's true. It's true in Amami as well. People say Shimaguchi for their language and they mean and they mean like the ling- the variety of their community, their small immediate community. It's not so much like Amami language. It's more like dialect of our town. Hmm. And my friend Fija Byron, he's also open about that, so I can I can say that he stopped teaching, uh, and he's one of the best speakers, if not the best speaker of Okinawan today. He stopped um, teaching Okinawan uh, at the prefecture because they insisted that it would be, you know, a course in Shimakutuba, in community language. And he says, I'm not teaching community language, I'm teaching Okinawan language. So either you change the name of the course or I go. And they said, go. Wow. You see, when it comes to that, there are limits, right? Because nobody nobody wants to give real space, meaningful space to the endangered language, right? It's all good when you say, oh, it's a festival and all people, they have the wisdom and we do an event and we publish a book and we make a leaflet and I don't know, you know, on that level, it's good. As, as soon as it is threatening to take something away from the dominant language from Japanese, you know, their support stops. It's a real scarcity mindset, isn't it? Because, you know, of course, as you know, people can be bilingual, communities can be thriving and bilingual. But this idea that like, oh, Japanese will somehow be weakened, Japanese, which has you know millions of speakers will be weakened if there's some space given to local languages. It's it's so easy. Look, I mean, it has nothing to do with the Ryukyus, but on Saturday, I competed in a trail run in the Alps. So I went to a very isolated valley in the Alps, and it's difficult to go there. It's far away from everything, and there's not much there. You know, there's no big cities there. There's no big industries there. There's a bit of tourism there. Everyone in that valley spoke four languages. Everyone. Everyone. They all spoke Italian because, you know, their nationality is Italian. They all spoke German because, you know, it's the German-speaking part. It was part of um, Austria. They all spoke Ladino, which is their community language. Um, And they all spoke English because you learned that in school. So everybody, you know, you didn't have to be like a university professor or, you know, some language freak. Uh, Whoever you want to, you know, professional runners were there. They spoke four languages, you know, waiters, four languages. Everybody spoke four languages there. So there is nothing elitist about it. In in the Ryukyus, once I've heard when we discussed language revitalization that uh, somebody said, well, yes, but Ryukyuns are still lagging behind in the Japanese curriculum to, you know, mainland Japanese. So they said they should first properly become Japanese. And once they've done that, then they become can become Ryukyun. You see, there is this mindset that this is only for for the brave people, you know, for those who pass all, you know, assessments, who pass all the gatekeepers. You know, if you're Todai educated, if you have a PhD, then you can engage in that. But if you look at that little valley, where wherever you went, you could negotiate what whatever language you wanted, you know, and, and they all spoke four languages and they moved easily from one language to another. So, uh, you know, something like that could be easily restored around the world. There's nothing particular about these North Italians. You know, there's nothing in their DNA which makes which allows them to do that. Everyone can do it. Yeah. I've been reading a bit about bilingual education uh, in, here in the United States because now I'm teaching linguistic anthropology and I have a module on uh, bilingual education. And uh, the data is actually very strong that if children learn their local language first, 
then they do so much better in school and excel so much more in the majority language, in this case, English, um, in the United States, even though the, you know, the fluency in UQs depends on, you know, the, who you were speaking to and what generation. I think there could be something there. I also think there's something there. If, if we return to um, the Ryukyus and, and um, Okinawa Prefecture, ever since uh, students have um, academic assessment tests and they have them every year in Japan, Okinawa routinely comes last nationwide. And every year when these results are published, you know, again, disappointment is big. Oh, my God, we're last again. Uh, we should, you know, try harder. And then people always start thinking, like, why is it that Okinawa comes last in the school assessment tests? And then they think, oh, because they don't do homework, right? As if that was the explanation. I think instead of thinking like, you know, that they would need more Japanese stuff and more homework and they would need to catch up, um, I, I think there is a lack of interest in school and the stuff that is in school that we see in Okinawa, which is behind um, the weak performance. Because Ryukyuans, before they were part of Japan, they were doing extremely well. You know, it's it's not that they are like not... Um, good in learning, not interested in learning. It's not true that they, that, that they would be lazy or something like that, that they would not have aspirations. You know, it's the situation in which they find themselves um, in a state that does not acknowledge their presence and their culture and it's not in the curriculum. Even if children are not able to put that in word, I think there is some sort of resistance against the stuff that is presented at school. And I, I think somebody should look into that direction in, instead of always seeing them as somehow deficient, somehow not good in doing homework. Or another explanation is they don't eat breakfast. They look for everything but for the fact that, as a matter of fact, there's different languages, a different history, a different culture there, which is not acknowledged in the, in the education system. I mean, it's the most obvious place to look at for these performances is there and not you know, at their breakfast uh, habits. I, I would have, not the breakfast thing, but I would also wonder if maybe there was some kind of socioeconomic element to it, in addition to the fact that your culture and your language are unacknowledged, and maybe that makes it more difficult to connect and be motivated to the curriculum. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, economic factors are always um important and um even those who are interested in Rukun languages even those who learn Rukun language even those who start speaking Rukun languages they will usually not have any economic benefits from that well there's of course vast economic benefits in being a good speaker of Japanese there's vast benefits in being a good speaker of Chinese of English you name it and but there's nothing natural in that right that is something that has been you know a situation that has been created because we know it from um, you know just from 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 other countries from other states that you can create economic incentives to be an uh, endangered language speaker um, you know public service is, um, is is something that all Okinawans want to work in right it's it's considered a really good secure job and there's not that many there and so one could easily link that to a Rukun proficiency test and say, oh, you want to work, in, and, and it would be very good because, you know, a public administration works for the public, and the public is Rukun. And, you know, Ryukyu has its language and its culture. It, it would make them better administrators. It would make them, you know, there's, there's benefits without an end. But one needs to create these benefits because the benefits that one existed have been destroyed and have never been restored. And you don't restore that by nice political speeches where you're saying, you know, let's take the, the, the language serious. You have to make it valuable. That is, that is not something natural that these languages serve no economic purpose. They've been made that way. Yeah, definitely. That's a good reminder. Can we discuss your work on language revitalization and well-being? Can you tell us more about this work and how revitalization and well-being intersect? Yes, this is, um, I think, a very good case to remind maybe listeners and even like, you know, if there's young academics out there, 
that when we do research, we always start with speculation. And, uh, you know, if we're good in our job, our speculations are very good. So it's not wild, random speculation. Um, but we've read something, we've observed something, or think there might be something there. And this is how the idea of language and well-being came into, um, came into existence. There is um, data that uh, shows um, that there is a correlation between maintaining uh, an endangered language and physical health, right? We know from Canada that, um, you know, communities that maintain their language have lower rates of suicide. Suicide, right? Endangered language communities very often have um, lower rates of life expectancy, higher rates of suicide. They have higher rates of everything that is bad. They have higher rates of alcoholism, higher rates of drug abuse, higher rates of teenage pregnancy, higher rates of domestic violence, lower rates, right? Everything that is good is lower education, income, safe employment kind of thing. Um, and, and one thinks, what, what could be um, the cause of that? And people think of a lot of things. And uh, language can be, you know, an obvious cause of that. So that's where speculation starts, that we always think, well, you know, they're not disconnected, they don't study well, and so on and so forth. But even if you go back, and that's why I say you need to speculate and you be, need to be knowledgeable in order to speculate well. If you go back to the early um, writings in language endangerment, the, the work of Joshua Fishman, so he, he speaks of social cultural dislocation, right? He says migrants are, you know, like physically dislocated and they lose their language. And, and they said um, endangered minorities, it is as if they had migrated. They stayed in the same place, but whatever was familiar with them went away. So it's even harsher on them than for migrants, right? Migrants, you know, migrant life too is very hard. Right, because it, it involves a status drop. You have to learn new still skills. You're very often a lesser version of what you were in, in, in your own community. So this happens to these communities. And this is why if they maintain their language, you know, they can maintain a, a sense of self-worth, of being competent, of closing out to the outside world and defining their own values. So excluding people sounds so negative in our mind. But, you know, if, if uh, you exclude people who dominate you, that is a very good thing. And we all exclude people in our lives all the time. I mean, this is why we live in houses, you know, it gives us shelters, gives us protection. And language works exactly the same thing. Because once we are at home, and your language is a home, you can define who you really are, and what you really value, and what you really want to do, and what you really look up to. If you're dominated, you know, if, you know, if you're at school and your teacher says, well, you know, this is not really interesting. What matters is that and that, you know, you want to have this room where you can, you know, close in, refine yourself. And, and, um, from there comes the idea that this is good on you on all aspects, whether that is uh, physical health or whether that is also mental health, right? So there's some people who look into this. A mental health thing like uh, you know self depreciation, um, depression, uh, which which is at a higher level in many uh, endangered language communities around the world, but you can also um, frame it differently, which is what I'm doing. Namely, look at the positive aspects. Well, if you speak the language, if you maintain it, if you are able, you know, to close other people out, to to define what you and your friends, your circle, really want to do. Will you be happier, right? Fortunately, there is a lot of work on, on happiness. And so what you really have to do is just take this work and their insights and link them to language. So there's, the, for instance, life evaluation. You can ask people like, you know, looking back, are you happy with your life? You know, did you fulfill your expectations, you know, is there something that you regret? And you can correlate that with the degree to which they have retained their language, to which they use the language, and see whether there is um, a correlation there. Um, you can ask them about their uh, subjective well-being. You can ask them, you know, from zero to 10, how happy are you? 
And most people, which is very interesting, are able to answer that question. They would say, I'm seven. Some people say, I'm three. And you can, you can look in these kinds of um, correlation. Um, technically, it's, of course, more difficult, this kind of research, because there's also like uh, mediating variables, like, you know, decolonization of the mind, social capital um, comes to mind, social mobility, aspiration for social mobility. Um, but what I'm doing right now is, uh, or have gathered data, uh, some of which also in, in Konya, uh, in which we're trying to see whether there is a correlation there. That's really, that's really interesting. I can definitely see how there would be, especially like if you, if you have your culture and have your language, then not only are you maybe perhaps happier and more confident in yourself, but you may also feel like more connected to your community, your ancestors. Like I can imagine that that would definitely tie into life satisfaction and happiness. Also, you know, uh, um, the habits and their knowledge. I mean, if we look at these Canadian communities where we see like, you know, less obesity uh, with people who maintain their language well, less diabetes with people who maintain their language well, it's just because they know what's good for them and they know how to get their hands on this kind of stuff. Whereas if you don't speak the language, if you don't know, know the culture, if you don't know your environment anymore and you are poor, that just forces you to buy like the cheapest, unhealthiest, you know, fabricated food that you found. You know, language is good for something. It's good for your health. And then once you have that idea in your head and think about the Ryukyus again, the Ryukyus are known for, you know, uh, longevity. But longevity, those who live long are the speakers of Ryukyuan languages. And we know that longevity in the Ryukyus is dropping. Right. So you see that we have usually like two stories going on. People talk about longevity and the Rukus, and it's not as good as it used to be because the young are not healthy anymore. And us linguists, we cannot help but know that, you know what, the old people actually speak a different language and they have different knowledge and they have different habits. And they know much more about the environment. They know much more about seasons. They know much more about cultivating stuff and gardening and all these kind of things. And the young people also through not speaking the language have no idea about that. So it's just screams that there's correlation between, you know, um, health, well-being, life satisfaction, also living a fulfilled life, right? So, and I'm using various set of questions um, to, to currently look into this. And um, as always, when we don't know very well how the connection is, we always use uh, first quantitative um, approaches. So to really see like, where is the nexus? How does this stuff connect? That's really interesting. Do we want to say anything else about that or should we move on? Well, maybe a, a last thing that... Um, Language and well-being, I think, is not just a new field of study and that, you know, um, I think anybody do, doing field work and listening to these ideas would, like, confirm, like, yeah, I've, I've seen something similar. I also think there's something there. I, I think Patrick is speculating in the right direction. I think it's a good idea to go after this empirically and to see whether it's true or not, you know. But that is not the entire story if there is a connection between language and well-being. And if we find that across various uh, endangered communities, not just the Ryukyus where I'm doing research right now, um, then we have an entire new way um, of looking into language endangerment. Namely, if endangered language communities, as we know, have shorter life expectancies usually, have higher rates of depression, unemployment, all kinds of things. All of this costs the state money. It's expensive, right? You could say, look, the cheaper way to address this instead of sending them to rehab and I don't know what and you know, running employment programs and so on and so forth is to help them to maintain their language and their culture, right? You would have a real sea change in that, that you'd say the way to deal with this problem is not more majority stuff, is less, and it's more minority things. And I think this is not only true for um, endangered language communities, but also for migrant communities. Maintaining a language is not just something that is hip, that you can say I'm bilingual and I don't know, 
you know, I know how to cook this dish or that dish, uh, something like that. It it, it is um, really meaningful for individual and collective uh, lives. It's it, it's vastly under-evaluated as a resource for a good life. I agree. Let's talk about your approach to mentoring. So there's a story I've told on another episode of the podcast, I think, where uh, you were the first person who I spoke to who was studying the Ryukyus. And um, I wanted to do an MA degree at SOAS. And I just sent you an email not expecting you to reply back. I was like, oh, okay, like, I'll just I'll just try. And you emailed me back right away. And then we Skyped and you invited me to the session in Helsinki. I don't know if you remember. Um, yes, that experience was very life changing for me. And it really set me on the trajectory that I am on now. I think if you hadn't replied to my email, maybe I would be doing something totally different. Mm. Um, so I feel a lot of gratitude to you, honestly, for that. Um, but I'm, I've seen you work with lots of other young linguists or just like new researchers. And I'm wondering if you have a philosophy when it comes to mentoring. Well, in, in large part, I think that's just how, how I am. I like in, in engaging with people. I, I like people who take a, a genuine interest in, 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 in something. What is also particular about me probably is that I don't like hierarchies. I passionately hate hierarchies and status difference. So many students write me and, you know, very often not even on the Ryukyus. Right now I'm just communicating with somebody in Ethiopia who wants to publish papers. And um, it is a huge privilege to be able to help people um, and um, anybody who'd write me anyhow is doing something that I myself am interested in, right? I mean, your thesis, you know, I would have loved to write your thesis, but I could not. I had no time, I had no resources, maybe not even the skills and endurance that it um, that it took. So I'm so happy that you did that because now I can read your thesis, right? <laughs> and now you are there. Now we have another uh, recurrentist and we have somebody who now takes up anthropology, which I think is very, very important because it's it's treated way too lightly uh, in the Ryukyus. It's good to have a contact uh, in California. It's good to have a new friend. So, so it's it's wonderful. I I, I usually reply immediately when these mail uh, mails come in. I don't recall, you know, I, I don't recall that I said uh, to anyone, no, I don't have time, or this is too much. I think it's um, it's it's fun, and 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 it it has probably to do that we are studying a very particular field. It's very hard to think that somebody dedicates um, years of their lives for, you know, endangered language, endangered language community, very often at the other end of the world, and that they are total jerks. You know, that's prob that's not very likely. Anybody choosing to do something in that direction is probably very, very likable person. You know, and I like likable persons. I'm, I'm I'm happy if they you know if they write me and I can expand my network, you know, uh, I, I profit as much as it. I profited more from your thesis and from your work than you would ever profit from you know the thirty minutes time that I took and talked to you on Skype back then. That's really nice. Wow, I never thought about it that way. I think the other thing I've noticed with you you and your attitude is. And it's so true, like, there is enough work for everyone to do, like, there is so much research that can be done in UQs. So really, we need more people <laughs> to come and, and do language documentation and language revitalization. Yeah, I just I think it's really nice, especially when you're like, you know, a scared master's student, like just starting out, not sure like what direction to go to. It it really makes a difference, I think, to have like one person give you that encouragement, especially when it is Patrick Heinrich, godfather of UQ sociolinguistics. It's, it's you know, another thing that um, I thought about it um, before that podcast. Another thing that I enjoy is that usually the people who write me initially have you know, vague idea and 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 interests, and in, initially somehow maybe I have this godfather role because you know, not because I'm terribly talented or, or or whatever, just because I've been around forever. I've been doing that for twenty years, 
and at a certain point, you know, uh, those who write me the first mail, and I would insist, look, but you better read this, you know, otherwise, you know, we're wasting our time here. I've said, after a while, they all overtake me. So Madoka Hamine knows much more about this, this stuff that I've written about that I have ever known, you know. Uh, there is, you know, I was always interested in uh, politeness and, uh, I, I, you know, and um, its function in, um, you know, language endangerment. Well, guess what? You know so much more about this that, than I do. Uh, Mark Anderson, who started reading my my things, you know, and, and then he was got in, interested into Okinawan Japanese and, and language mixtures, knows vastly more than I do about that. And, and that that is wonderful. Uh, so I, 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 I really like that. And very often, you know, the last guy who contacted me was um, an Uchinanchu who was in Stanford into Persian studies. And then he thought, well, I'm doing Persian studies. I should be doing Okinawan studies. And he contacted me and we had, you know, just as the two of us had at one point, a conversation over meat. And then I said, you know what? But the real expert is not me. You know, you should talk to Madoka. And now he's starting with Madoka. So there's something very, you know, it, it makes me happy that everybody is so successful and, and goes so far. And that there is, you know, after, you know, you and Madoka, you were both in Helsinki, right? You came when, when I gave these lectures on Rikyun language, that you're now, you know, yourself teaching at university, that you have yourself students. And that I can say if, you know, now the next generation comes and say, look, you know, in that case, talk to Madoka. In that case, you know, talk to Martha. It's, it's great. Um, I see myself more as, you know, the Madoguchi of uh, Ryukyu linguistics. <laughs> you know, like the reception. I say, oh, this, you know, talk to Shimoji-san. This, you know, talk to Ishihara-san. You know, this, talk to Hais, and so on. That's funny. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, thank you so much, Patrick, for coming on Field Notes. Where can our listeners find you online if they want to read your publications or learn more about your work? Where can they do that? The only page that I really keep, um, maintain well is my page at ResearchGate. So there you could also find like all sorts of papers. And I think, you know, you, you can I think there's more than 80 papers uploaded there. So if you're interested in something particular, you can look there. And it also maybe reflects a bit, you know, the, the different things that I'm doing because I do not work full time on endangered languages. I have, you know, also um, other uh, interests. And so probably ResearchGate is the best page to look at. Great. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Field Notes, a podcast about linguistic fieldwork. This podcast is hosted and produced by Martha Satsui Billens with production help from Laura Satsui. Claire Gaughan is our editor and Luca Dinu is our transcriptionist. Our music is by Lobo Loco and our logo is by Evil Designs. If you have fieldwork experience to share, email us at fieldnotespod at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at lingfieldnotes. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to follow and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. Also, consider becoming our patron on Patreon to help keep our content ad-free. Thanks for listening.